0: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Salli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flint. Well,
0: Margaret, more changes at the top of the Department of Health and Human Services. Susanna Fox has been named Chief Technology Officer at HHS. She replaces outgoing Brian Civic, both of whom have been guests on our show.
1: Well, this move is being met with a lot of praise. Susanna Fox is a self-described geek, but beyond her substantial abilities understanding health information technology and the impact of the Internet on modern healthcare, care, she really understands how that data translates to the human experience.
0: You know, she spent more than a decade at the Pew Research Center doing longitudinal studies on how computers and Internet have impacted human behavior, and she's highly respected entity in the data world, and we might add she's a West grad uh, here in our own hometown in uh, Middletown, Connecticut.
1: Well, we never like to miss the opportunity to <laughs> tout our, uh, our famous Wesleyan grads. Uh, but also HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burrell lauded this appointment, saying that Fox will bring her commitment to effective and responsible use of technology throughout the healthcare sector.
0: And Fox says she uh, plans to advance the open health data initiative at HHS, as well as generate more innovation through the the idea lab
1: And speaking of health data and health information technology, the nation's practices are preparing to switch October 1 from the long-used ICD-9 coding system to the ICD-10, which is expected to bring much uh, richer, more specific health data uh, into the spotlight.
0: We're going to highlight the work of WEDI, which is the work group for electronic data interchange. We have with us today Jim Daly, who is the immediate past chair. The organization was created by the Department of Health and Human Services to find ways to improve the use of health IT to facilitate better health information exchange. He'll talk about the challenges to getting the medical establishment to embrace the switch over to ICD-10. And
1: Lori Robertson will check in. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health and health policy in the public domain.
0: But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. As always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradiochc at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Jim Daly in just a moment. But
0: first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. South Korea is attempting to clamp down on an outbreak of MERS, a virus that first emerged in the Middle East that is particularly deadly. 30 people have tested positive for MERS in South Korea, the largest outbreak outside the Middle East, and hundreds of schools in that country have been closed as a precaution. Several people have died in the outbreak so far. States are bracing for a decision from the Supreme Court in the King versus Burwell case, which challenges the legality of the tax subsidies being used to offset purchase of insurance under the Affordable Care Act in states that didn't set up their own exchanges. 93% of the 1.3 million residents of Florida, for instance, currently receive subsidies to purchase their insurance and would likely lose that coverage. An estimated 8.2 million Americans could lose coverage across the country if the high court decides in favor of the plaintiffs. Los Angeles has launched a program aimed at getting chronically ill patients who are homeless into better care management that actually saves money by providing them housing in a newly erected facility that also gives these expensive patients access to better preventive care. The Star Apartments, funded by the Skid Row Housing Trust, gives the chronically ill homeless an apartment and access to care coordination to better manage their conditions and keep them from costly hospital visits. Currently, 700 have received such housing in the pilot program. Another 1,500 are slated to be housed next. Today's teens are living what might be aptly described as a virtual life, spending a good portion of their time online. So it's natural that's where they'd go when searching for health information. The report, Teens Health and Technology, took an expansive look at teen Internet behavior and found while four in five teens use the Internet to research various health conditions, they aren't likely to believe that information. Where do they think the most reliable health information comes from? from their parents. The study showed teens tended to want privacy, though, when researching medical conditions on their own. One in three teenagers said they changed their behavior because of what they'd learned from online sites or apps, but were more inclined to follow their parents' advice overall. So apparently, even in the digital age, mama still knows best. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Jim Daly, immediate past chair of the Workgroup for Electronic Data Interchange or WEDI. Uh, leading authority on the use of health IT to improve health information exchange, improve efficiency, and reduce cost in healthcare. care. Mr. Daly is an expert on ICD-10 readiness as well as HIPAA compliance issues and is currently serving as the director of IT for Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. He also serves Blue Cross nationally and founded the Blue Cross Corporate Information Security Council. He served as commissioner of the Electronic Healthcare Network. Mr. Daly received his degree in engineering at the University of Connecticut, and served as a commission officer in the U.S. Army. Jim, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Uh, Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here today. You know,
0: I want to sort of set the stage because, you know, uh, Wheaties formed back in 1991 by then-Secretary Sullivan out of the Department of Health and uh, Human Services to explore ways to enhance uh, health information systems, and its really sort of focus is to make America's healthcare systems more efficient. Uh, the HIPAA law is passed, uh, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountable Care Act. Can you tell our listeners, give us the sort of bigger picture, fill in the details of how the mission has evolved and as we enter now a much more sophisticated uh, digital age in healthcare,
3: care? Uh, we have a diverse membership. We have over 300 corporate members and individual memberships as well. Our memberships are uh, providers, software vendors, health plans, clearing houses, laboratories, government agencies such as CMS, Department of Defense, state Medicaid's, and many industry associations. These are many of the biggest names in healthcare. Our mission was, and it still is, to provide an unbiased, consensus-based industry position on how best to move information in healthcare in an efficient and effective manner while protecting the privacy of individuals. One of the first challenges we faced was to have the industry adopt standardized electronic transactions for things such as claims in order to reduce or eliminate the use of paper forms and phone calls. With the passage of HIPAA and the subsequent regulations, a transformation was set in motion. Uh, uh, In 2013, on the 20th anniversary of the 1993 Weedy Report, which really kicked all this off, we published a new report looking at what the industry had accomplished in the last 20 years taking into account that many things have changed since 1993. It was interesting to note that the players are essentially the same, and much of the information is the same, but now there's an increased focus on the patient. And, of course, there's an abundance of new technologies such as mobile devices. But regardless of all that, our mission is still to make all this work smoothly and, and securely.
1: As Mark noted, it was really the whole industry was in its infancy uh, when you started this, and I think we all feel kind of privileged to have uh, participated and been part of this uh, giant shift over from the old paper records to uh, an electronic age. But now we've got another challenge uh, on the horizon in front of us, and I know this has been an important topic for you. This is this issue of the pending switch to the ICD-10 health billing codes. This is really the nature of how we describe what it is that the patient has, what the condition is with real specificity. And while most developed countries in the world already use ICD-10 codes, the switchover in this country is, oh, about 30 years behind the times and has been delayed a couple of times even when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid said, absolutely, it's going to happen in 2012 or 2013. It didn't. So you've been analyzing and writing about the need for ICD-10 coding since the early 2000s. Tell us, tell us why you saw this as such a vital issue so early on in the quest for better health information management.
3: Um, the current ICD-9 coding system, as you indicated, it's over 30 years old. And at time, many new surgical techniques have been developed, new diseases have been identified, um, such as AIDS, for one, West Nile virus, things of that nature. ICD-10 captures that new information, including the underlying causes and severity of diseases. In other words, this is caused perhaps by smoking tobacco. So Mm -hmm. that, that adds to greater understanding of what's actually causing that particular disease to occur. Uh, one other example, the diabetes category has been expanded to provide a much more detailed description of the type and cause of the illness. It will facilitate population health studies, which would lead to identifying better treatments by understanding the specifics of the patient's condition. ICD-10 also is going to provide detail needed to track outbreaks of new diseases and to facilitate a more rapid response, um, Ebola being one of those items. Many of the new codes in ICD-10 were created to allow capture of basic information. They talk about how many codes are in ICD-10, but some basic things like laterality, left side or right side. Uh, One uh, study said that was about 46% of the new codes, Uh, but that's something basic that should already be included in clinical documentation. Many of the ICD-10 enhancements were made at the request of physicians because they wanted to capture this more more, uh, detailed information that is important in treatment of the patient's. You know,
0: Jim, uh, Margaret was talking about the delay that uh, happened last year. You know, there sort of seems to be some controversy within the industry. We have the uh, director of the American Health Information Management Association on talking about the nation's practices, have spent time and money on this. And she said a majority of the practices were prepared to do so. But your organization, Weedy, has been conducting ICD-10 readiness surveys for the past several years. And according to your surveys, many practices really aren't ready to make the switch what's the problem? Give our listeners a sense of the sort of complications and cost around what, one, is a difficult issue to understand, but, you know, maybe give some flavor for what what's happening there amongst healthcare organizations.
3: Well, we've been conducting our surveys since 2009, and they've shown consistent, but as you indicated, somewhat slow progress in, in moving to ICD-10. There's several main barriers, but uh, One, it's a very large effort for some organizations, particularly the physicians groups, don't see the value in it, certainly not an immediate value in it. You don't implement ICD-10 on Monday and on Tuesday. All of a sudden, your finances are better or you have more time to treat patients or something like that. So it's a longer-term benefit. So without that short-term gain, there's a reluctance to move forward. And everyone seems to be dealing with a multitude of other mandates. Everybody's got something else to do, whether it's implementing the Affordable Care Act or quality measures, meaningful use of the electronic health records. There's a lot going on. Now, the larger organizations, they've continued to move forward and have completed or nearly completed their work. They're doing final testing with their training partners. But it's a matter of priorities and resources. Physicians have focused on other mandates, and they still have the hope that the date will change again. But I caution them: don't bet your business on that.
1: <laughs> well, Jim, I have to say that uh, they may not see short-term gain, but I think it's a pretty good guarantee that they're going to see short-term pain if they if they don't sort of prepare for it. I want to talk about another uh, area of interest at Weedy, and that's supporting the growth of an infrastructure that supports health information exchanges. And most of the nation's hospitals and practices now have switched to electronic health records, which is remarkable in and of itself. But we still have this issue of communicating information uh, systems that aren't really equipped to talk to each other, and this elusive concept of interoperability. And one of the excuses people give for lack of interoperability is concern over violating HIPAA regulations. And we know there are some places that seem to be getting it right. The New York eHealth Collaborative, for example, and certainly know a few other states uh, around New England and the country that seem to be getting it right. What do you see as the real hurdles to achieving this interoperability and the exchange of information? And, And what are you doing to advance and support that? And if you have any best practices that you'd like to share with our listeners...
3: Well, people certainly need to consider some of the aspects of HIPAA, such as privacy and security. But the primary issue is the systems are not interoperable. As you mentioned, even within the same facility, uh, some facilities have uh, over 100 systems, and they don't talk to each other. Now, there's two aspects to interoperability. First, you have to be able to send the information from one point to another. But secondly, and equally important, it must be understandable and usable by the receiver. So healthcare terminology in the data needs to be standardized so the sender and receiver can communicate effectively. Our two thousand thirteen WEED report identified data harmonization as a major area for action. And we're working with the Lewis W. Sullivan Institute for Healthcare Innovation to form a work group to examine this further, but it's gonna to have to be an industry initiative, not just a WEED initiative. We all need to work together on this.
0: We're speaking today with uh, Jim Daly, immediate past chair of the Work Group for Electronic Data Interchange, or WEDI, a leading authority on the use of health IT to improve health information exchange. Mr. Daly is an expert on ICD-10 readiness, as well as HIPAA compliance issues. He's currently serving as the director of IT for Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. Jim, let's take a look at the exploding world of health information technology. I was listening to Margaret, thinking about uh, most hospitals have gotten... uh, uh, electronic health records, how strange would it be right now if I said, to, you know, one of my banks just went from a journal entry, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, they're so far behind, uh, you know, healthcare. this whole area is still emerging. And it raises a number of problems because it doesn't have really the sophistication that the banking world does all across the globe, where, as you said, you could send information across. I can go to Japan and pull out money from my ATM. It simply talks to uh, my bank uh, here in Connecticut. It raises a whole nother set of issues, and we've seen this. There have been major data breaches, some of the nation's largest healthcare care and insurance providers. Can you give an assessment? Uh, of the essential threat to health data. and How's the health IT industry recalibrating to handle the growing demands of health information technology and the very real cybersecurity issues that have emerged from sort of a new industry? Kind of amazing.
3: It certainly is. Um, First of all, as the amount of information increases exponentially, there's a corresponding amount of information at risk. I don't want to be alarmist, but I always say the best way to totally secure information is to turn off your computer, unplug it from the network, and place it in a secure lock facility. (laughs) Even then, of course, it could still be compromised if the device was stolen. So we're faced with creating a balance of the risk versus reward. The reward is the benefit of having the information, being able to share it and use it. The risk, it could be disclosed, altered, or destroyed. But you can mitigate that through several methods, and one of the primary ones is through encryption. But there's other methods, like having effective processes to control access to the information. In the past, if you've read these articles, um, primary cause of data breaches was human behavior, like losing your computer or smartphone. Um, There's countless devices left in airports when you go through security. They leave their smartphones or laptops there. But recently, very recently, malicious hacking surpassed that for the first time. Now, big organizations, they've got special software to identify and block these attempts. They also have more sophisticated software they can use to look at network and device behavior and set off an alarm if something strange occurs, like an unusual amount of information being uploaded to an Internet site. But it's important for everybody to be wary of scams like links and suspicious emails. People should avoid using public Wi-Fi if they intend to access anything confidential or enter your, your passwords and login names. And I do want to reemphasize the importance of using encryption. The more difficult you make it for someone to steal your information, the less likely they'll be successful.
1: Well, now that we've terrified everybody with the nefarious possibilities around uh, their electronic health records, I want to go back up to the big visions and goals and maybe on a positive note ask you to comment on the elements of uh, the transition to uh, this ICD-10 that we talked about earlier earlier that really are uh, not about me or I or, you know, my patient, my provider, but really are about the greater good. And the compelling reason that has been put forth repeatedly about the switch to the ICD-10 is it really stands to make a contribution to public health, to global health, and to health quality. What's the connection? How is it going to do that?
3: The World Health Organization created the ICD code to classify diseases, and ICD-10 is their tenth version of that classification. But other countries, including the U.S., have created more detailed extensions of that of that base set. Our version is called ICD-10-CM to show it's our clinical modification, but it's still based on that who base set of codes. We also created a separate set of codes, ICD-10-PCS, to identify surgical procedures. With this, we can now identify things like implanted device, surgical complications, and a lot of other clinically significant details that we couldn't capture under ICD-9. By using a common set of codes, the international community can share information that will lead to better outcomes. The more detail you understand about conditions, the more you can identify, well, this works when they have that specific aspect of a condition, but it doesn't work when you have that specific aspect. Importantly as well, you can track disease outbreaks like the recent Ebola crisis Mm -hmm. and allow you to take quicker action. Um, We can identify who where, when someone has a disease, and link them together to say an outbreak's occurring, it looks like it started here, and these are the points where it's manifesting itself across the country or across the globe. And again, as time goes on, we'll be able to measure the effectiveness of various treatments and compare them to international results and identify what's really the best way to treat specific diseases. It's becoming more and more important with increasing prevalence of chronic disease.
0: Jimmy, you uh, just mentioned that the World Health Organization, and uh, they're uh, obviously already working on ICD-11. And uh, while we're still struggling here uh, in the United States to get through ICD-10, and uh, some have suggested that we skip ICD-10. So are are there things we should be thinking, though, about uh, in terms of ICD-11 that are being overlooked with the current struggles to implement ICD-10?
3: Well, ICD-11 is still a long way off. Uh, Once it becomes available, currently it's projected for 2017, but the U.S. will make its clinical modification to add the details we need, and then you need the regulatory process to begin to propose adoption, go through all of that. Some estimate that that entire process could could take well over a decade, which at a minimum would place us at 2027. On top of that, um, IC10 is a necessary step in moving to ICD-11. The changes in 11 are significant, ICD-10 provides an intermediate stepping stone. So while the industry needs to focus efforts on completing ICD-10 implementation, it would be worthwhile for some groups to take a look at what's being proposed for ICD-11 and be involved in that dialogue.
1: Well, Jim, when we look to the future, obviously health information technology is just fueling so much exciting and dramatic change in so many facets of the industry, particularly around patients being engaged in their own care through uh, remote monitoring and communication, telehealth, real-time health data aggregation, all of this, we hope, leading to better outcomes, better health, better cost containment. Now, I understand uh, at Weedy that you assisted the u s Government Accountability Office on the potential of one uh, such innovation using electronically readable Medicare cards reminds Mark and I of the the card Vital that we heard about that's in use in France and actually has been for many years. What was the outcome of that particular study, and what other potential game changing technologies do you see from your unique perch? as poised to help uh, streamline care delivery, make care better for patients, providers, and the society as a whole.
3: The purpose of the study was to determine if it was feasible to use electronically readable cards to replace the paper cards that have your Social Security numbers on the front. Using electronic methods, it would reduce the potential for fraud, would help protect people by removing display of their SSN, and it could also offer greater efficiency by doing things electronically instead of manually capturing the information on the card. Uh, The study concluded the benefits would depend on what processes could or would be automated by using the cards and on participation from the providers. But eventually, we may not need these ID cards per se. As people start to use smartphones, tablets, wearable devices, they're becoming more and more prolific in our society. So everything we need to store or share may be handled through one of those devices, maybe a single device that we we choose. Uh, Recently saw a credit card computer, credit card size, you can put it in your wallet and it can do some basic functions. Now, we do with the Sullivan Institute, uh, we're working together to do something called the Virtual Clipboard Project to develop a mobile app and eliminate the manual capture of ID card information and use of clipboards when you visit the doctor. This is not just Medicare, this is for all doctor's visits. A lot of times you have to enter your demographic and medical history information seemingly every time you visit, and you may not even consistently enter the same data. The Virtual Clipboard eventually can be integrated into the provider's workflow trigger an eligibility request, and in subsequent phases, we plan to incorporate features such as medication lists and allergies, all that good information you won't have to enter, remember, and provide to the provider. Our initial pilot phase is scheduled for later this year. Now, looking into my uh, crystal ball, beyond the traditional encounter, we may have our health continually monitored through wearables or even implantable devices, and we can receive an alert if something looks suspicious. One prominent doctor noted, though, that receiving an alert that you're about to have a heart attack may actually cause you to have one. Hmm. Now, now, much of this technology is already available, but it not, may not be in widespread use at this point. Adoption is going to depend on the individuals as well. Many people, they're very willing to use these wearables to monitor fitness activity, but are they willing to have a device that tells them they've had too much sugar already and shouldn't have dessert? <laughs> That's the big question. So. It certainly is an exciting time to be in health care, and I look forward to what may be coming down the road.
0: We've been speaking with Jim Daly, immediate past chair of the work group for Electronic Data Interchange, or WEDI, a leading authority on the use of health IT to improve health information exchange, improve efficiency, and reduce cost in health care. You can learn more about their work by going to WEDI.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at WEDI Online. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today.
3: And Thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure.
0: At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Laurie Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week?
4: Lawmakers of both parties have made misleading claims about the government interfering with women's ability to get mammograms. The claims stem from new draft recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, an independent volunteer panel of primary care physicians and experts in preventive medicine. The task force examines peer-reviewed evidence and makes recommendations to help doctors and patients make decisions on preventive services. The task force's latest draft recommendations on mammography are virtually unchanged from its 2009 recommendations. They recommend biennial mammography for women ages 50 to 74 who are not at high risk of breast cancer. For women age 40 to 49, the decision to have a mammogram, quote, should be an individual one. And the task force says there was insufficient evidence to evaluate benefits and harms for women 75 and older. The recommendation for women in their 40s was controversial to some lawmakers and cancer groups who recommended yearly mammograms. These are simply recommendations, but there's a new wrinkle in how they impact the Affordable Care Act. The law ties the task force's recommendations to requirements on insurance companies to cover certain preventive services with no cost sharing. If the draft recommendations become final, insurers no longer would be required to cover annual mammograms for free for women aged 40 to 49, a requirement that went into effect in 2010. That doesn't mean that insurance companies wouldn't cover mammograms. The ACA's requirements are minimum standards, and plenty of insurers covered mammograms for 40-year-old women before the ACA but with co-pays. Some of the claims we've seen misplaced the blame for a change in insurance requirements on the Preventive Services Task Force, which doesn't issue any kind of insurance mandate. Instead, it was lawmakers who added a provision to the ACA tying the task force's future recommendations to coverage requirements in the law. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Depression is extremely common among adolescents in this country, but it's often hard to differentiate between typically teen angst and a clinical condition that requires more immediate intervention. Unfortunately, a teen's level of depression isn't realized until they take drastic action. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24 year olds, a population that almost ubiquitously uses texting as a form of communication.
5: Texting is a fantastic way to communicate with young people, so it has huge open rates and it's really fast. But it has this one weird side effect where uh, we're the only brands that they text with. You know, you really only text with your family and friends, and so and us, and do something. And so, because people texted with us, they felt really comfortable. And um, they started sending us things that were shocking, like, I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I'm being bullied or about being cutting.
0: Nancy Lublin is CEO of Crisis Text Line, an instant texting service designed to encourage teens in crisis to reach out for help, which they receive instantly. All they have to do is text the numbers 741-741.
5: So if you're someone who's in pain, you text us, and then the counselor on the other side is not working from a phone. There on a screen that almost looks kind of like Facebook or Gmail. When messages come in with certain keywords in them, they automatically get tagged as high risk. So we don't take them chronologically. Um, if you're at risk for suicide, you're automatically bumped up in the queue and you're like a code red. You get flagged in our system.
0: Since she founded Crisis Texts, the word has spread like wildfire. They receive an average of 15,000 texts per day from kids experiencing. Everything from typical teen dilemmas, such as a fight with a boyfriend, to kids contemplating suicide. And the supervisor would determine
5: whether or not this person um, with the imminent harm, whether they have A, a plan, and B, the means. Then we will trigger an active rescue.
0: Crisis text line, an instant, age appropriate intervention, available free of charge and 24 7 to give kids in crisis a lifeline and lead them to help they need. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
2: And I'm Mark Maselli.
0: Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.